a leader for a new and united Ireland. Uchtaron Hin Fein, Mary Lou Macdonald. The weekend marked five years since Mary Lou Macdonald assumed the position of President of Sinn Féin, taking over from Gerry Adams, who'd been at the helm for 35 years. I don't think Adams ever wavered in his support. I think she was his protégé. She was the new face. Around this time five years ago, Ireland was battling the beast from the east. Most people had never heard of a coronavirus and Sinn Féin only had 23 seats in the Dáil and were languishing in the polls. People want different politics, new politics and better government, a new government. And I believe Sinn Féin will be the core of that. And you're expecting to be Ireland's next leader? I I may well be the next Taoiseach, yes. Two years later, in 2020, Mary Lou Macdonald led her party to its most successful ever general election. Sinn Féin has won more votes than anybody else, more seats than at any time for a century, and broken a duopoly between the centrist Fianna Foyle and Fianna Gael, which is more... Though there's a tight lid on dissent in the party, she is not without her critics. How do her troops view her five years on, and how has she changed in that time? I'm Aideen Finnegan and this is In the News from the Irish Times. Today, the meteoric rise of Mary Lou Macdonald. Jennifer Bray is political correspondent with the Irish Times. Jennifer, you've written a piece to mark Mary Lou Macdonald's fifth anniversary at the helm of Sinn Féin. Now, if a week is a long time in politics, then five years is a metaphorical eon. And to be honest, 2018 does feel like a long time ago all of a sudden with the pandemic and everything. So could you take us back to where the party was in 2018 and maybe what the political climate was then? Yeah, so the the piece, like you said, is basically looking at, you know, Mary Lou Macdonald, the person, uh, the individual, the leader, how she's regarded in, in the party, but also those five years uh, leading up to her, well, her five year anniversary, quite frankly. And I think like if you go back to when she took over, it was at a, it was at a stage at the party where I think it was becoming really obvious to people like Jerry Adams that a generational change was needed. There was a feeling that uh, every time there was a media debate or every time that Sinn Féin kind of made one or two steps forward in the polls at that or that they would take two steps back because of the constant need to have to explain or apologise for atrocities of the past and and people who had links to the provisional IRA and, and, and that 35 year campaign of violence. And I think that actually, you know, having worked on the piece, one of the most one of the most interesting things I found was the story of Mary Lou Macdonald, the politician, and how she came to be in that position in 2018, where she was primed as the the next leader. And that's essentially what happened, because there's a lot that's kind of not known about Mary Lou. And that's why some commentators sometimes describe her like as an enigma or a riddle or a mystery because her early years in politics are, they're quite vague, actually. And it was one of the challenges, actually, writing this piece was going back and finding out what was her path through politics, because she's unusual. She's she's different. She's broken the mold to other politicians, but uh, in her own part, but and in other parties, because in other parties, you have to go up through, you know, the council, you have to do a lot of legwork. There's, you know, a lot of uh, politicians will come up through grassroots organisation, where Mary Lou Macdonald was in Fianna Fáil for a very short amount of time, some, something that she frequently glosses over. But in fairness, it was it was a, probably a period of less than a year. She joined Sinn Féin and I think Gerry Adams recognised from very early on 
uh, when she joined circa 1999, that she had bags of talent. She had, you know, lots of uh, potential, uh, leadership potential. She was avowedly Republican. Um, she had no ties, uh, personal uh, atrocities to answer for links to the IRA. She was this sort of middle class Dublin, new potential new face of, of Sinn Féin. And I think what happened from 2000 onwards um, was her kind of proving her Republican credentials within the party, turning up to commemorations with Gerry Adams, kind of her face kind of appearing everywhere, whether it would be a, a delegation over to uh, Downing Street or a delegation traveling north, wherever it may be. She was kind of suddenly always there at Gerry Adams' side. And I think in that period, up until 2018, uh, as you reference, she did prove her, her credentials. You know, I had one source who said that, you know, there were many different commemorations which would have been politically sensitive or awkward to attend. And she she did. And every time she was tasked with kind of dealing with the media in that in that period, she did it really well. And what, I think what one person said to me was she never flinched. And I think she continued to oppress, even though she had two failed runs at the doll. I don't think Adams, Jerry Adams ever, ever wavered in his support. I think she was his protege. She was the new face. And then in 2018, we saw that transition rather smoothly happen, which is not the case, as you know, in, in other political parties. It's interesting because we see Mary Lou Macdonald's very electable now, but it took her a good long while to become a TD. It did. Yeah, it did. And, you know, like I said, when she she skipped the whole council section of working as a as a councillor, she went on to the Ord Corla, which is the ruling body in 2001. Like that was a yeah, whole... Yeah, I didn't realise until your piece that just two years after joining the party, she ends up at the Ord Corla, which is yeah. top tier, right? One of the top tier, you know, one of the top power structures within Sinn Féin is the Ord Corla. There's 55 people. It's, a, it's big, you know, that sit on it and they coordinate national strategy. She was on that from 2001. Um, in 2005, then she became the party chair was like even though she wasn't always a star in terms of actually getting the seat in her constituency she still was always favored for kind of leadership positions within the party despite being unelected you know she had two failed attempts for the doll 2002 and 2007 uh, she did have one successful stint in the 2004 european elections 2004 european elections really interesting because that's where she started to prove that she was a really capable media performer and that she could kind of run rings around people and I think that's when in the minds of people like Jerry Adams and, and and senior people in Sinn Féin they kind of thought there's some there really is something to this you know and then we saw from then obviously she was elected to the doll for the first time in 2011 re-elected in 2016 made a really big name for herself on the public accounts committee as someone who could you know hold every state body and and everybody who came in was held to task um, sometimes in a very clinical way and often in a way that provided sound bites. But can I also put it to you that you earn more than the President of the United States of America. You earn more than the Taoiseach here, senior ministers here, people who carry very significant briefs. And you operate in... We see from then, like I said, her seamless transition kind of into power because Sinn Féin is a very... They're so Sinn Féin's a very different political party to others for a whole lot of different reasons. But sometimes it's never more obvious than when th than when they have their leadership election, because in other parties, there's a lot of, you know, naked political ambition. People, there'd be a contest, there'd be, you know, mutterings behind the scene. That's not what happens in Sinn Féin. The message goes out that this is the candidate and that's the candidate. And that's the only person because I'd heard 
there were other people who the grassroots maybe favoured people like Pierce Doherty, but that's he wasn't the favourite candidate. They wanted a woman, I think, as well, which wasn't the only factor. But that was her first her first year in 2018 was kind of she was coming in on the, on, on the heels of a lot of problems, bullying allegations from councillors. And she 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 took some time to bed down. She had a rocky she period. She did. She did. And I, I, I there's a lot to unpack there and I want to come back to it. But let's talk about that period when she started off, because she had, you know, Leonie Rido was the presidential election candidate, performed very poorly. Uh, the, the party didn't do great in the locals in 2019. So she got off to a rocky start and people were kind of scratching their heads going, this, this should work. But it, it wasn't working out for her initially. No, Leonie Rida, the, the public did not connect with Leonie Rida. Uh, it, her campaign was was obviously unsuccessful. And I think if you're talking about 2009, the reality for Sinn Féin is that this was a disastrous year. I 2019. Mean, 2019, the local and European elections, you know, it, the, they lost two of their three MEPs, as you referenced, 78 of their 159 councillors. I mean, it was a national reversal, you know, and I think when that happened, there was, I remember it well, there was shock across the party. And it was one of the very few times in Sinn Féin that I have experienced party TDs privately, but openly discussing, you know, okay, what happens now? Like they, they weren't going into full heave territory, but they were extremely anxious. And then all that changed, Jennifer. It was like 2020 and the party did so well in the general election in 2020. Well done. Thank you so much. Which of Ireland's main political parties is feeling happiest about the way the election results are going? Well, only one of the leaders was pictured shaking hands with the voters today. People want different politics, new politics and better government. And you... What they did was impressive, actually. You know, they... They had this outreach program in different communities. They went to find out, like, what happened? How did this go so terribly wrong? And and also, how did we not know that this was coming down the tracks? And when they actually dug in a little deeper, there were there were a few problems. I mentioned the bullying um, that's kind of dogged the party allegations that the public didn't take well to that. That was uh, a particularly unpleasant smell around that time. But also the main thing was they were viewed as having an overly negative message as being a party of protest, not offering any solutions, just always being in attack mode. So they actually took all that. They did a reshuffle of the front bench and they, you know, Mary Lou MacDonald wanted policies from each of her front bench spokesperson. And when they went out into the media, they those solutions were supposed to be presented clearly. And that started to change the tide. The other thing that changed around the time as well is Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael were in confidence and supplier arrangement. I think Sinn Féin and Mary Lou Macdonald managed very well to paint Leo Varadkar and Michal Martin as being one of the same. You know, one, one famous phrase that always comes up that she said was Tweedledum and Tweedledee uh, have the numbers and they, they club together. And that was successful. So when people started to really feel the crunch in 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 terms of housing, because I remember being on the campaign trail in 2019 local elections, and I remember the amount of people who answered the door and said, housing, housing, housing. It's all about mm-hmm. housing. My daughter can't get a house. Uh, my sister can't get a house. You know, my son can't get a house. I can't get a You know, all this kind of stuff. But they weren't naturally looking to Sinn Féin then until Sinn Féin came forward and said, here's our housing spokesman. Here's all his solutions and really put him out there. And all of that changed the game for them. Increasingly, people saw there's kind of two clear options here. Uh, you have, you know, Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael 
broadly offering more of the same. Uh, and I think what we got right, uh, and I think we did get it right, is we offered those people a very clear, a very coherent, and what we would say is a very credible uh, alternative. Right. And I think that's why we're in the position we're in today. Okay. I've noticed that we started talking about Sinn Féin again. It's actually really hard to talk about Mary Lou Macdonald specifically without veering into Sinn Féin because her brand, I suspect, I suppose, is so inextricably linked with the party. So let's try and, and talk about the woman herself. You canvassed a variety of opinions from party members for your article. And tell me about the words that were used to describe her. So, yeah, I, I was interested in finding out because, you know, obviously I've met Mary Lou a few times. I, I watch her at close quarters. We go up into the gallery and, and watch leaders' questions. I can see with my own two eyes how, what kind of person I think she is. You know, I don't know her personally. Um, and I was interested to know. Now, having said that, I, I like I didn't want to go delving into her personal life. You know, wasn't my interest in what happened. You know to her. What to do with Shane Ross? No, I thought Shane Ross's book was really, really good. And you know, there was a lot of things I didn't know. But uh, you know, she also made it very clear last year, kind of that she didn't feel her family was up for grabs. So I kind of just wanted to focus on what do her troops make of her? You know, what did the party make of her? And it was really interesting because. Look, Sinn Féin, we all know there's always been a culture of secrecy there. They deny it, but like, that's like denying that the sun is in the sky, you know. They are a very secretive <laughs> party. So what I did was, I first I started with the Parliamentary Party, you know, talked to TDs, senators, you know, off the record, just like, how is she doing? Like, tell me about her strengths, tell me about her weaknesses. And I got a list of strengths, you know, um, all the things that you would expect. And then when it came to asking about weaknesses, it was just kind of almost bordering on the hilarious. It's like, oh, well, weaknesses, you know, any one of us could have a weakness, you know, we're all human, you know, what weaknesses do you have? And I'm like, well, I could unfurl a scroll with several weaknesses and, and keep you talking here all day, but it's not about me. Um, and they just didn't, they, they don't want to go there. And that's because Sinn Féin is not a party where outright dissent is tolerated. Now, once you go digging a bit deeper to people maybe who worked with her in the early days of her coming up through Sinn Féin, also, people who would have had arguments with her, people who would have had disagreements with her, people who would have left the party. It's it's a double-edged sword. She's described to me as being very stubborn. Once she gets something into her head, that's it. She's pragmatic. Uh, she's approachable. She has extraordinary stamina, is what I'm told, and extraordinary self-belief, which in fairness you would need in the doll and in politics generally. Um, but there are other people who don't look at her in quite a positive way. You know, they say that she, what some people would have described her to me as being a populist, as being an opportunist. You know, they would point to her like kind of jumping from Fianna Fáil to Sinn Féin because she was impatient to make waves in politics. But, you know, I, I think other people would have said that the, the Fianna Fáil party wasn't Republican enough for her. I would love to hear her thoughts on this, by the way. And, you know, th there's these two kind of pictures like one is of her who a woman who has you know tried to bring up a family at the same time as like rising through the ranks of party like Sinn Féin um, and it took a lot of sacrifice traveling to the EU working as an MEP being pregnant while canvassing all that kind of stuff and there's a lot of sexism that goes with that too and then there's the other side of it is someone who was kind of plucked from obscurity who is part of Jerry Adams long game who was the new face of Sinn Féin that this is the ultimate political long game and I think it's both personally, like much of us are complex, nuanced, nuanced people. I think it's a bit of both for her. Um, I think if you're on the hardcore list since 2001, mm. I think you could very easily argue you're the leader who calls the shots now, you know, 
Yeah, I mean, look, this question of who runs Sinn Féin, it's one that comes up all the time. It does. And I do want to acknowledge the fact that, you know, that's a very legit question or a very sexist one, depending on who you're talking to. Absolutely. And she has said that herself. You know, she spoke to the Irish Daily Mirror last year and I'll, I'll read you out her quote, actually, because it's as Mary Lou has wanted to give, you know, quite strong quotes. She said the people who make assertions, the shadowy figures are pulling the strings are made up by men of dubious competence who clearly aren't great at making decisions themselves. I don't see how this could be read as anything other than profoundly sexist, that this woman couldn't possibly be really be the leader of Sinn Féin. Guess what, boys? I really am, basically. Now, um, I don't know if I agree that the question is sexist. I can understand why people would think it's sexist. As a political journalist, I think there have been genuine, legitimate questions asked about the structures within Sinn Féin. And they say that the answers are all out there, but I'm really not quite sure. You know, we don't, there's no real transparency about what happens in the, so they've three, without getting too deep into the weeds of this, there's three kind of entities. Um, They have a Kush the Shasta, which meets every two weeks. Um, That kind of manages party finances, day-to-day fundraising, all that kind of day-to-day stuff that, that, you know, party organisational stuff. Then they have a national officer board, um, that's got the likes of Mary Lou MacDonald, Michelle O'Neill, um, Pierce Doherty, uh, Connor Murphy, Declan Carney. I think they're all on that. And then they have the Arakorla. There's 55 people on the Arakorla. It's made up of there are former IRA veterans on there, people with links to the IRA, lots of people, northern politicians, MLAs, two MPs. Um, and, uh, you know, I think we, they have six six uh, TDs and, and one senator from the Oireachtas. Uh, it seems to lean north because of that. There's more kind of northern influence from what I can see. And like they're, they're important questions. You know, is the party, where, where does the balance of power lie? And sometimes I think Sinn Féin is too easy to say, these are stupid questions. But actually, there is a totally different decision making structure in Sinn Féin to other parties. And the power is taken out of the parliamentary party from what I can see. And when Sinn Féin say that's no different to any other party, it is. It is different in a way. They have to sign, a, they have to make a pledge candidates before the election that they will be led by directions from the Ard Corla. And that leads me to wonder if they were in government, uh, how would they reconcile all of these internal structures with being a minister? When you're a minister, you're accountable to the doll, you're accountable to the public, you're accountable to Oireachtas committees. It's that kind of accountability, which we're all aware of. What is the accountability in a Sinn Féin minister? Does a Sinn Féin minister actually have any power if their decisions are being made by somebody else. These are legitimate questions. And I think the party does itself a disservice when it dismisses them as being, you know, uh, hyperactive media with who well, are scared it's, of Sinn Féin. It's easy. Yeah. It's, it's easy. It's an easy one to, to throw. But I suppose on that issue of sexism, like is Mary Lou MacDonald a feminist leader? You know, the way I think of first, the Scottish First Minister, Nicola Sturgeon, I think of her as a leader and a feminist. I sort of don't necessarily get the same vibes from Mary Lou Macdonald. And then when you're talking about the structures that you mentioned there, like I imagine they're sort of patriarchal and male. Mm. And then you wonder, like, are you just working for the patriarchy yeah. as opposed to, you know, disrupting it or yeah. do you know what I'm, I'm, get, I'm getting I at? Do. I do. I do. I know exactly what you're getting at. Um, it's it's an interesting one. Like her feminist credentials have been questioned a few times. And would she call herself a feminist? She was asked this, I think, in the last general election campaign. And she said, yes. And she said, of course, I'm a feminist, because actually the whole, you know, reason for being of Sinn Féin is equality and is, mm. you know, feminism, nothing if not equality between the sexes. Um, on the same hand, I remember during the same campaign, 
the National Women's Council, I think it was, asking her if she was Taoiseach, would she commit to a gender balanced cabinet? And I don't think she did commit to it. I think she said, well, the makeup of the cabinet is up to the people of Ireland in terms of how many people are elected who are male or female. But actually, it's not that, you know, if you are a genuine feminist potential Taoiseach, I don't see how it's that difficult to say that would absolutely be my intention. Um, and I think some political leaders have been caught out on that question, not just Mary Lou MacDonald, like Leo Varadkar at one stage, Mia Martin, you know, it's not just her. When she, a month before she took over at the Ordash when she was uh, succeeded Jerry Adams in 2018, there was, there was a formal ratification process and there was a press conference afterwards in Belfast. She said at that press conference, and it was to kind of great applause that Sinn Féin is probably the most exemplary party when it comes to girl power in Irish politics. And everybody was cheering and everybody was kind of saying, you know, isn't she fantastic? Girl power, you know. But, and I, I said this in the piece, like there's nothing really in my opinion that has called into question her judgment on this more than her treatment of Maria Cahill. Maria Cahill, we know, was raped as a teenager by a senior IRA member. And I remember the debate in the Dáil in 2014 um, when all of this began coming to light and Mary Lou MacDonald kind of everybody was watching to see what she would say. Jerry Adams there in the chamber as well. You know, how would she square the circle in terms of feminist credentials, especially? And she defended her party and she defended Jerry Adams in that she denied kind of this, the allegations of a cover up um, of the abuse of, of Maria Cal. Allegations have been made against Sinn Féin that we are party to a cover-up or conspiring to shield child abusers. This is not true and the mere repetition of this slander will never take from the fact that it is not true. We you know, like that was a really striking moment. And then I think of Violet Ann Wynne, who quit the party last year, uh, Claire D, and she talked about how, you know, she was on maternity leave when she left. And she talked about how her pregnancy was used as a stick to beat her with. And she was kind of very upset at Mary Lou MacDonald. And I thought that too kind of put her in a more unflattering light. Did Mary Lou deny that? Did Sinn Féin deny that, that it was used as a stick to beat them with? Sinn Féin said that there were problems, internal problems, that they had done their best to work to resolve with Violet Ann Wynne. I, did, I was hoping to talk to Violet Ann for, for the piece, but I think from what I can tell, she's very keen to just move on and to work kind of as, as an independent in the Dáil and, and to, to look after her young family as well. Coming up, how Mary Lou the person has changed in the five years since she became Sinn Féin leader. So speaking of the cases that you've mentioned there, Violet Ann Wynne, Maria Cahill, and but also the bullying allegations that have dogged Sinn Féin and more recently the name-checking of Mary Lou MacDonald in the Hutch trial by former Sinn Féin councillor Jonathan Dowdle. Like there is, there is a Teflon coating on Mary Lou MacDonald because it, to my mind, it doesn't seem to really stick with the electorate. Now, obviously, we, we don't truly know because maybe she and the party would poll higher if those things hadn't happened. But still, my sense is that that it's not something the electorate really cares about. Yeah, I, th- I think that... Or the, her base, I should say. Her base, yeah, I think that... It's an interesting one. I think the the reason why she's escaped some of the, the tarnishing maybe from bullying allegations, and there have been so many, you know, there have really been a lot, is because it w- those allegations were rife before she 
became leader. Now, you could also argue on the flip side, like we talked about earlier on, she was on the Oracorla since 2001. You can't say that she wasn't involved in the decision making structures or aware of what's going on in the party. But in terms of her as a leader, um, I remember there were countless cases of councillors who had left, quit the party and released statements about all kinds of allegations. One kind of more kind of concerning than the next. Um, But I did on that basis, I did go back and do a tally of how many councillors left since she took over as leader, to be fair to the piece, which is trying to look at the five years. And on my count, it's 12. Now, uh, there could be more that I missed along the way. Uh, you know, Google doesn't tell you everything um, or searching in the archives won't throw up everything either. But uh, they're the ones that I found. And and just to kind of give you, I suppose, a flavour of what the allegations were, they included allegations of verbal abuse, smear campaigns, being disconnected from the party, being disillusioned for because not being involved in, in, in decision making, being ostracised when they raised issues, being told what to say or how to vote on the council by these kind of political managers, undemocratic selection processes and failure to act on allegations or cases that are raised by bullying in a time frame that would be considered fair. And then more recently, um, we had Theresa Ferris who talked about quitting because she was concerned about the party's Republican values perhaps being a diluted. So there's a whole list of things there. But just to go back to her leadership over five years, how do you think she has changed in that time? I, I think you mentioned in your article that she's, for one, she's much more wary of the media. She is. Yeah, she, look, I, she, there's no doubt about it. She used to be on the, the Leinster House plinth where political leaders, all, all the politicians, opposition, etc., will come out quite frequently and take questions from the media. Um, and she hasn't done that in a really, really long time. She hasn't been seen... I think it's a deliberate strategy. I'm pretty sure that, you know, there's other political observers who would agree with that. I think there's a a number of reasons for this. Number one, she didn't seem to like some of the questions that she was being asked by reporters. I think she felt some of them were silly. Number two, I think the party was really worried about being overexposed, her being overexposed generally. But also it is if you're constantly putting yourself out in front of the media who we all have a million questions a day and things are constantly coming up, you're kind of opening yourself to what they might regard as attack, what we would regard as actually just kind of a fundamental aspect of democracy, which is taking questions, you know, from us on behalf of our readers or or outlets or whoever we may work for. I would say I looked at her first Late Late Show interview that she did in 2014 well, she's hotly tipped to be the next leader of Sinn Féin. Would you welcome, please, Mary Lou Macdonald, ladies and And I, I had to kind of do a double take because I've become so used to looking at how she operates now that it was genuinely surprising. Well, maybe it shouldn't be surprising that someone would evolve so much in that time. You're welcome. Thank you. Strange to say your first time ever on The Late Late Show. And I didn't fall down the steps. And you made your way down. Her relief. In one piece. Um, but no, she was so open. She seemed so delighted to be there talking to Ryan Tuberty, um, who was absolutely peppering her with questions. You're from what part of Dublin? I grew up on the south side of Dublin. Yeah. Uh, on Orwell Road, which is between Rathgar Village. Ryan, beautiful road. Beautiful yeah. Place. And, and she was just like, almost like she was enjoying herself. You know, her mother was in the audience. She was really warm, really engaging, really receptive, completely open. And then if you fast forward to the last time she was on The Late Late Show just before Christmas, 
uh, it's almost like she she would she brought like a metaphorical sword in with her, like ready to do battle. She's definitely more wary. I think she's had so much more experience of the media. A lot of it hasn't been probably for her very pleasant or comfortable. Um, but these have all been legitimate questions, you know, and, and that's what happens when you're a party leader. You The book stops with you and you have to be the one out there leading charge and answering the questions. But I think I've noticed in her that reticence to deal with the media. Um, and yeah, but what people say about her internally is that she is kind of changes in the last few years. The difference between her and Jerry Adams is she's much more approachable. She's very affable, um, but she still expects a lot of the TDs. And what I hear recently is her, their front bench. She's constantly putting them under pressure, saying you need to do more. You need to do more. You know, you've, you've done this. You've done this policy. You don't get to sit down and rest. You know, we could be on the cusp of something and we're not going to miss out on it because we haven't done X, Y, or Z due diligence or whatever it may be. Um, so she's pushing. We're looking at a general election late next year or early 2025. What do you think are the banana skins that she needs to watch out for? I think one of the big things that will come up for Sinn Féin will be, and this has already started happening, you know, after their kind of very successful result in 2020, you know, a stunning victory by any measure, nearly shattered that duopoly of, of Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil. But, it, but there was a third party all of a sudden in the game and, and that achievement for her was kind of her crowning, you know, that was her crowning achievement. But since then, because of that level of success, the media have taken a more critical eye to Sinn Féin policies. One thing I'm very interested to see will be Sinn Féin's economic policies, for example, parsed out. Do they make sense? The, the closer and closer they come to potentially, you know, entering government, and that is not a given because there are so many steps, But you know, even if they're successful in the next election, in government formation, which are hugely uncertain. Um, I think the parsing out of their policies, are they realistic? People will expect us to do that. And we will make every effort to do that. And I think they'll come under pressure there. If you say you're going to affect this change, right, you say you will build 100,000 houses in, in the first few years, which which is what they say, you know, OK, tell us exactly how, give us the timelines, give us the deadlines. You can't just go in and say, we'll probably need 10, 10 or 15 years to clean up this mess. You know, you actually need to say, here's what we promise you we'll achieve. And I think putting the rubber to the road will be a big test for them. As much as Mary Lou Macdonald has managed to, and I wouldn't say evade, you know, she's definitely come under pressure on questions of, you know, apologising for the provisional IRA's campaign of violence um, over 35 years. This will continue to come up for her, you know, and some people say that younger voters don't care about what happened in the past. I would disagree. I think people do care. I just don't think that it was top of the pile of issues in the last election. And I think there's still so much there that could potentially become an issue. I think that nothing nothing is a given, even if the trend is very clear. Jennifer Braid, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That's it for today. For full access to journalism from the Irish Times, go to irishtimes.com forward slash subscribe. This episode was produced by Suzanne Brennan and myself, Aideen Finnegan. In the news, we'll be back on Wednesday.